0: In this episode of field link we'll visit with sean mccarty sean is the director of government affairs for helena he will break down how the recently passed inflation reduction act will impact growers in addition we'll visit with him about other key legislative activities that are taking place currently in washington and how some of these bills may impact agriculture Plus, we'll catch up with Jody Lawrence in Nashville, Tennessee, for the latest trends with the commodity markets. And finally, we'll travel to Lincoln, Nebraska, to visit with Helena agronomist Keith Mock to discuss the benefits for controlling weed seed populations with an effective post-harvest fall weed burndown program. This and much more. So stay tuned for FieldLink. Joining us today here on FieldLink is Sean McCarty. Uh, Sean is the Director of Government Affairs uh, for Helena Agri Enterprises. Today, Sean will visit with us about everything from the Inflation Reduction Act to the upcoming Farm Bill and the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act. Plus, we'll explore some of the industry's challenges uh, from the courts to agencies and how some of these decisions will impact growers. Stay tuned for FieldLink. Sean, I want to welcome you to FieldLink. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into this particular role here at Helena?
1: Well, Bill, thank you for, uh, for having me. Uh, a non-traditional approach. If you look at uh, many of the individuals that, that have uh, roles similar to mine within the industry and outside the industry, uh, most of those folks uh, may have gone to school for political science uh, or had an early interest in politics, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps clerked uh, or worked as staff in the state legislature or, uh, or the federal legislature or, or maybe possibly with the Farm Bureau. Uh, I came about it a slightly different route, uh, worked in a variety of roles within Helena uh, as a product manager, as a sales representative, as a branch manager. Uh, and then this opportunity came before me. And uh, it seemed like it was a great opportunity to differentiate ourselves and have somebody who who actually has lived the business and understands the business so that when we sit down and have these sometimes very complex and and oftentimes emotional conversations about uh, what's going on in in rural communities and the ag industry, that I can look them straight in the eye and say, look, I've I've lived it, eaten it, and,
0: and breathed it. Right. You, you can relate to what's going on. Well, boots on the ground. You've had that experience then. Yep. Awesome. And that's pretty important when you're talking a lot to, whether it be senators, congressmen, maybe even governors from time to time.
1: Exactly. I think that uh, the, the population directly involved in agriculture has diminished, uh, and partly by technical uh, innovation and efficiencies. Sure. But a uh, 100 years ago, where half of the population – Everybody's grandfathers and, and, and great-grandparents were involved in ag. Uh, that, that really dropped off over the 21st century. Post-World War II, we were down to a third. Mm-hmm. And today, we're less than 2% of the population is directly involved in agriculture. So through no fault of their own, members of Congress and, and their staff just are disconnected. Uh, right. Whereas maybe they were once the farmer themselves, uh now they're two maybe three generations removed from the farm yet they're still
0: discussing policies that have as big an impact as ever yeah that's a, it is amazing to see you know the general population is at least three generations in most cases away from you know from that farm life from that experience of uh, growing up in agriculture Sean, tell us a little bit uh, about uh, some of the big things that are taking place right now. You know, boy, I tell you, you can't turn the TV on or check Twitter or anything. And it, it, the Inflation Reduction Act—it's catching all the news right now. Wow. Sean, I know your team's really been digging into this area. How is that going to impact agriculture, from your perspective?
1: It remains to be seen. I think to, to act like I have a, a crystal ball. Um, we don't really know exactly the impacts. That's because some of it is, is ideological in nature. Uh, if you look at many of the cost savings that, uh, that have been published by the, uh, the budget office and, and, um, and the White House, they're projecting cost savings from uh, climate efficiencies <laughs> and a reduction in natural disasters because of uh, some of the green initiatives that, that are involved. Uh, but if you look at, at some of the tax revenue that, that's going to occur, increase in IRS tax agents and uh, a 15% minimum book tax for corporations, uh, those those will have impacts on businesses. They will have impacts on ag. I don't know that they will be drastic, uh, at least on the surface right now. Uh, at the same time, I think you know, many of the things that are directly related to ag, such as the conservation spending, the, the climate-smart uh, funding that's in there, it's not novel. Uh, it's really just increasing funding to programs that are already oversubscribed. I think anybody that uh, has ever been involved in any of the, the programs through NRCS, uh, the, the EQIP uh, programs, uh, any of the conservation programs, countless times you, you meet farmers and growers that say, yeah, I've applied. Or maybe I've even been accepted into this program. I'm going to sure. put you know, these acres or this farm or this field in and come to find out the program maxes out and they're no longer in. And so what the Inflation Reduction Act will do is, is it's going to increase funds into those programs. So there will be a positive benefit there. Obviously, a lot of tax uh, incentives for uh, energy and, and green measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the tax, I think, up to $7,000 for electronic ve- or electric vehicles. Uh, that are new. I think it's maybe three or 4000 for used vehicles. Okay. So r- you can see where they're moving. And if you follow the administration, the Biden administration, look at who they've put in charge, whether that's former EPA Administrator uh, McCarthy, uh, John Kerry, even the folks that they put in charge of the National Economic Council, uh, the head of that came from uh, BlackRock on Wall Street.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that individual's uh, portfolio was – Sustainability markets, so you can see where they want to move things. So I think there will be significant benefits there, um, not without some heartache on some of the, the the tax increases and some of the measures that are going to take place. Uh, the one thing I think there is a consensus on, uh, even in a bipartisan manner, is if there's one thing it's not going to do, it's probably not going to reduce inflation. Uh, but okay. but that's uh, that that was uh, the language that was used to help kind of sell the narrative. So. It remains to be seen down the road uh, who the winners and losers will really be other than, you know, some of the the green industries uh, in the short term.
0: And I think that's really going to potentially, you know, because we're talking a lot of money here. That could really influence maybe growers or agribusinesses like ourselves on how we move forward with some of our purchases, our capital, and how we do business. Correct. And, and, and one thing that you see right now is
1: you have a number of states that are actually uh, taking action against companies on Wall Street uh, that invest in, and have uh, certain parameters or certain restrictions on if you don't have the correct ESG scores and, and emission structure. Uh, and there are states that are saying, hey, look, if you, if you want to do business in our state, you will strike those. So uh, for, for folks like Helena, for farm businesses, we need to be as vigilant as ever right. and stay on top of it because uh, it's, it's really a, a tricky game when you're trying to navigate a stream that you've never gone down before. You don't know where the logs and the humps are. And, and right. with sustainability and the green initiatives, there, there's a lot of good there. But defining what many of those terms are, even the, the term sustainability itself –
0: it's still an unknown. And right. so that's uh, that's the challenge that we face. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. You know, we're, we're, we're still trying to define terminology. Uh, and it's not like all of us in agriculture. We've, we're probably some of the most sustainable, uh, I guess, organizations, groups out there. We've been doing it for years. Conservation, my goodness. Uh, we know and understand the importance of conservation. It's not like we haven't done it. But we have to look at it in a different light and, and really try to identify how this will uh, benefit us and, and how we have to play the game, quite honestly. Correct.
1: And that's the one thing in, in some of the discussions that I have with, with folks in, in Washington, D.C., and the various state capitals, is really trying to explain to them, especially the new folks mm-hmm. uh, and the staff. Uh, you know, Not to, to, to belittle it, but many of the staff that work in these offices are 22, 23, 24-year-olds that have a, a, a very real interest in politics. Maybe they want to run for office one day. Sure. Or maybe they want to work at an agency. Uh, but they are the front line. Those are the folks that you need to convince because at the end of the week, that member of Congress or, or in the state legislature is going to go to their staff member and say, okay, who have we heard from today? And what were they saying? And so we've got to get out in front of these things and educate them because if they're a kid that grew up in an urban area that's never been on a farm, that majored in— logistics and they're covering ag, transportation, cyber terrorism. They have no idea. Right. And so we need to explain them look from from a conservation standpoint, trace it back as far as you want, there's no greater conservationist than the farmer. Folks that live on well water. Right. Folks that that fish in the streams running through their property. That that may harvest the deer and and, and wildlife that come from that farm. There is no one that wants to make sure that our resources are safe and sustainable than the American farmer.
0: Right, that's it's amazing. Uh, you've been spending a little bit of time in different uh, uh, houses and so forth. You've been in D.C. a little bit. What what are you picking up from the farm bill with a lot of the chatter going on right now? What's what's where are we at with that right now? Yeah, I think
1: anytime you head into the farm bill, you know there's two unique parts of the farm bill. That's the 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 farm portion, and then there's the supplemental nutrition. Mm -hmm. Uh, Historically, folks referred to to much of that as food stamps, but that's the the food aid that goes out to folks. Uh, And and that's a large chunk of it. Uh, What
0: what, what percentage, roughly, is that?
1: It's close to 80. I think the last farm bill, I think 2018, it may have been 76%
0: supplemental nutrition, 24% uh, ag programs. That's amazing. So, a play on words, if we really think about it. The farm bill thinking, oh, this money's going to is farmers. One quarter, is one quarter farm. It's not. It's going to, you know, the average, I guess, not average, but citizens yep. uh, to, from a nutritional standpoint.
1: Correct. And so, uh, and that's that's gone down steadily over the years. And uh, the ag industry finds itself uh, somewhat in, in defense mode mm-hmm. saying, listen, we know we're not going to get more just don't take any more away from us. Okay. Uh, if you look at the pressure, and and, and we'll talk about it with, with the way weather patterns are shifting and crop mixes are shifting, the volatility. That's one of the big concerns we have is when it comes to crop insurance and some of these commodity support programs is knowing that the way wa- weather patterns are shifting and the losses. Uh, five years, you know, every every five years the farm bill is renegotiated. That's a long time. A lot can happen inside those five yeah. years, and so there is a a lot uh, of concern there's a, a large effort to to get increased flexibility into some of those programs but it's it's protect it really is protect that funding in today's climate with inflation where it is right now the cost of of uh, of food as a whole that's going to be very difficult because if congress does not want to spend any more money on the farm bill i think last time it was nearly 900 billion dollars over a 10 year period about 420 430 Over a five-year period, if Congress doesn't wish to spend any more, but food costs more, and you look at it, you go to your grocery store today and you see the the massive increase in food prices, it doesn't take a a rocket scientist to figure out that you're going to need more money to cover the supplemental nutrition portion. Right. Well, what's that leave the ag portion?
0: Right. Back to crop insurance, back to those fundamental things that I guess we've become used to from an agricultural standpoint. Yep. Wow. Uh, and when when is the vote or what's the progress right now uh, for that? Yep. Yeah, so the Farm Bill will expire at the end of September 2023. Okay. So
1: we've got some time. Generally, you want to get to work as early as possible. Then you get into the unique politics of it all, which is today, uh, Democrats control the, the House, uh, the presidency, and by, by tiebreak, the Senate. Sure. Uh, however... There's a belief that, that Republicans may win back the House. The Senate's probably an unknown. Uh, but when they believe there's a shift there, folks are, are very hesitant to show their cards. And so if you look at the House right now, uh, you don't see a whole lot of movement on the farm bill discussions. In the Senate, they're moving along. They've had some field hearings. Okay. It's a bit, uh, a bit more bipartisan. They know that with a, a, a 50-50 split, they've got, um, they've got 50 Republicans and 50 that caucus with the Democrats. You need 60 votes in the Senate to get it across the line. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what happens, we know that you're going to need votes from the other side. They know that they have to be bipartisan. In the House, 218 takes the vote. So whoever has the majority gets it. So you see the House slow play it until the elections happen uh, and see where it, it lies after that. Uh, in the Senate, they're they're moving along. They're, they're trying to figure out what their priorities are going to be. So we've got... A little more than a year. Um, oftentimes it doesn't finish on time. Uh, all the best intentions to get it finished on time and not let it expire. But, uh, but yeah, the next year uh, we'll be uh, heavily focused on,
0: on farm bill in the ag world. Certainly a lot of activity on the Hill over the next year uh, in that space as we, I guess, posture ourselves, position ourselves mm-hmm. uh, to, to have our say with the, the farm bill. Correct. Great. It, you, you know, Sean, one, uh, one area that uh, has quietly... Uh, uh, seems to be getting some attention here, and I know it's caught some of our attention here most recently is the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act renewal, uh, the P R R I A. And boy, there's some big chatter going on in this area that could definitely impact most uh, growers. Yeah, P R I A is a uh,
1: is a function that was created uh, about 20 years ago. And it was a way of generating maintenance fees and registration fees for EPA to approve uh, of pesticide products that are coming through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in its fourth iteration now. It was last done, uh, I think, finalized in 2018, enacted in maybe 2019. Uh, and it comes up every five years as well. Okay. Uh, so we are due, the same dates, we are due for it, uh, uh, expiration end of September 2023. And it's a bipartisan effort, uh, usually. Uh, there are ag groups, pesticide industry folks, uh, non-ag, uh, but as well as the, uh, the the non-governmental organizations, the NGOs, uh, farm workers, and uh, Sierra Club, and defenders of wildlife, and, and some of those groups. And really, it's it's an effort between those two groups to say, okay, we all want products to go through an EPA registration product, uh, right. process, and we want that process to be efficient. Uh, we need new products on the market. Uh, we also understand that products that are currently on the market need to be reviewed. Uh, moving into the, the next pre-reauthorization, uh, the new protocols that are EPA are, are going to create some division. Uh, there's a new uh, standard in place where the EPA needs to do all their consultation on endangered species impacts on the front end of registrations. Uh, we've got a deadline upcoming October 1st where hundreds of products that had been on the market for decades will have a determination. Uh, I think at one time, I think the number was 700 and some products. Wow. Uh, that go through a 15-year process are all due to have a renewal. Well, with the new products in, or the new processes in place, those products are going to have changes. Whether that means that they lose their registration uh, or they see reduced uh, usage rates mm-hmm. uh, or geographical uses Uh, There's going to be some significant uh, changes there. And so as we head into laying out what the pesticide registration process looks like for the next five years with an EPA, what happens after this October 1st deadline and we start to see what some of these new changes are moving forward is going to have a real, a very real impact on, what the industry is willing to compromise on when it comes to the pesticide registration process. We're paying more and more. It's, it's a bit of a pay, uh, a fee for service. The industry is putting forth uh, a lot of the money that goes into funding EPA's Office of Pesticide Programs. Sure. Uh, recently, we uh, uh, lobbied very hard uh, to increase funding to the EPA, which is not very common. You don't hear the ag industry uh, asking for increased funds to sure. EPA. But what we've seen over the last decade or so is a significant drop in the staffing at EPA. And so today, if we talk to folks at Helena, Mm -hmm. uh, folks in the the Helena Products Group, and we say, what's your number one challenge? They will say, getting products approved. Products that used to be slight amendments that took three months take a year. Mm -hmm. New products, instead of taking a year, take three years. And so not only is that economically a massive hit, but agronomically, it's a massive hit because we've got products that are solving problems, providing solutions that we can't get to the people who need them most. And so we, we've really got to focus on, okay, what what can we do to help? So we went to EPA and, and said, you know, what would help remedy these issues? You know, we kind of did the analysis and realized, okay, we, need to, we probably need to boost the funding on EPA. It's gone down further and further from, I think, 900 or 1,000 full-time executives our employees in the Office of Pesticide Programs to moving into this year, I think it'll be under 600. So there's just nobody there. Right. And so while we get it, EPA can cut both ways sometimes. Uh, we we understand that if we want our products on the market and we want to bring new stuff onto the market, we've got to have those folks there doing that process. So we, we asked. We said we'd like to, to go ahead and boost funding, not astronomically, but above where it's been so that we can – do our part and, and right. show that
0: we're all invested in this. And I think that's a, a, a wonderful thing when we say, as an industry, say, hey, we're willing to help out to do it right. And, and uh, Are there any other industries out there that actually go to the government and said, hey, we're all in, we want to make this process? I think that there, there are a couple here and there, but I think that the
1: ag industry, that one of the beauties of the ag industry is that it is bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have our fights Sure. Uh, we're going to have uh, folks that that always feel like we should be doing it differently, but if you look at the legislature, uh, both in in, in Washington D.C. and most of the states, those folks get along. Yeah. Uh, you know, the AG committee may not be the the hallmark committee. You know, the the high level committees of appropriations and ways and means sure. or. Uh, you know, homeland security or something right. that's really attractive. If you're on ag, you want to be on ag. Right. And those folks realize that Republican or Democrat, urban or rural, we all eat. Yep. And the United States does a fantastic job of providing safe and nutritious food at an affordable level. Most countries, it's one or the other. Yep. We have found a way to balance that. Mm-hmm. But the way we do that is through bipartisanship and, and working together on acts like PREA and the Farm Bill and other legislation. Wow.
0: Lots happening specifically in that area, and it's certainly going to impact growers uh, you know, in the next few years as we kind of navigate through that process. Uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about FIFRA. Uh, tell us a little bit about FIFRA, and why is that important to growers? Yeah, so FIFRA is the
1: Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Redenicide Act. it uh, been around for, for a very long time, and is the gold standard, uh, at least in the pesticide industry, mm-hmm. when it comes to regulating uh, pesticide use. And so you have chemicals that are, that are industri- industrial chemicals, non ag chemicals, those types of things that are regulated by the Toxic Substances Control Act. But FIFRA is ours. That's the statute. And for, for so long, we've said, you know, it's, it's one of the best in the land. Recently, you know, the, the sentiment has started to change. Whereas we never wanted to, to really uh, recreate FIFRA, We're seeing issues now where there's a concern that well, maybe FIFR isn't the defense that it used to be. You see states that are starting to ban pesticides or place massive restrictions on pesticides. California is the shining example. Uh, If you look at uh, glyphosate and Prop sixty five, you know they have said you know we're going to put a cancer warning on the label, and the EPA says we've done our analysis, we don't find that at all. Mm -hmm. Don't submit a label. That says that on the label because that's not what we're finding. That's EPA. That's FIFRA. That's what we have authorized as our governing, regulating body. But you're seeing other states pop up and say, okay, well, we believe differently. And so there's a very real concern of, well, if, if this process that we've, that we've put in place and the FIFRA statute is no longer viable, then what changes need to be made? Right. Do we need to change FIFRA? Uh, I'll bring up uh, the right to farm laws. Okay. I think people thought that most states had very good right to farm laws. I think North Carolina thought they had a really good right to farm law, and then we saw a, a nuisance lawsuit out in North Carolina years ago, and it did not end well for the farmer who, really, through their uh, from from their standpoint, and I think most of folks in the ag world and some some um, nonpartisan folks thought well. They're completely in the right. There's, there's no fault there. What that caused was every other state to go back and look at their right to farm laws and go, right. we thought they were good. Right. But in today's world, with the changing landscape and changing attitudes towards everything and sometimes sure. emotion winning over logic, right. uh, maybe they're not as good as we thought. And so that's where we are with FIFRA today is we, we've got to ensure that we have a, a, a risk-based approach. Uh, scientific, you know, uh, integrity-based system to approve the pesticide products that we put through there. Uh, We spend, you know, what, three, four hundred million dollars and spend over a decade trying to get products approved. Mm -hmm. One might make it through out of the hundreds that that get sent through. There's a very rigid uh, and rigorous process that those products go through, and so we believe in that. We may not always win, but we believe in that process. But if we start tearing that apart, that's a bigger issue than FIFRA. That's a right. bigger issue than EPA. Right. You start getting into that concern of people not trusting any of the government agencies. And that's a very slippery slope. That, said that, that gets further out than just ag. But we've got to defend that at, at, at some point.
0: I think you bring up a great point. we got to defend what we have and, and keep the integrity in place like we've, we have had. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. The landscape, I think, you know, the chatter of, you know, things outside of agriculture may influence this. And we certainly all have heard about, you know, some of the stuff with whether it be the FBI or whatever. Those things certainly could influence and impact some of the laws that we're so used to like FIFRA. Correct.
1: And, and that's where, you know, and, and you have to educate the lawmakers. Because most of your legislators uh, are, are really lagging indicators. Mm-hmm. They're not the leaders uh, when it comes to thought. They're representing their districts, and they're, they're out there really trying to, to take the temperature on their district or their state and find out what folks out there are saying. Right. I'm not saying that you don't have uh, a, a maverick out there right. that, that is you know, regardless of what his district or what her her district or state say, they're going to tell you what they want to do. Mm-hmm. But many of them are reflective of that. And so we've really got to educate them to make sure they understand that, yeah, we get it. You know, we don't always like the findings that a government agency has. But that's like your parents. Right. You didn't always agree with the discipline that they came down with, yep. but you trusted, especially as you got older, you trusted that what they were doing were for the right reasons. Right. And we've got to have that relationship. That's that's what the founders and, and the whole purpose of, of the government was, is they're there to serve the people. We empower them to do those things. We fund them with our taxpayer dollars. And so we've got to follow suit on that. If we start tearing that apart, um, we, we've really kind of crossed over
0: a line. Yeah, definitely. You, you know, Sean, that kind of leads us to the next topic here a little bit. You know, we've certainly seen a a lot of shift, and again, going back to the media and, and who you're listening to and what you're listening to, but the courts versus agencies, it seems to be creeping into all aspects of our lives today. But boy, you know, it is certainly sleep, uh, you know, s- slipping into agriculture. Uh, how are how are some of these, I guess, relationships impacting us? Yeah, I think you know, going back to the pesticide bans portion,
1: that's that's one of the challenges that we have is that historically, uh, groups that may oppose, uh, let's take a pesticide or a class of pesticides, they might sue the EPA and say that we don't agree with your findings or we don't agree with your methodology. Um, Or or maybe you're seeking uh, an endangered species violation that you didn't evaluate this properly and we believe that 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 particular chemical may harm this this species of of plant or, or animal. And that worked sometimes. Um, not nearly enough that they would like. And so uh, a a solution was found, which is, well, let's go to the courts and let's find a favorable court ruling, Mm -hmm. and that will force the hand of the agencies. And so we've seen that in the Ninth Circuit Court in California. We saw it with dicamba. Uh, We've seen it with some of the other insecticides that have been ruled on here lately, where – the court finds, hey, look, we, you know, we believe that you did not do this properly, so this is uh, this needs to go back to the drawing board or, or it needs to be redone. And as a federal court, EPA or whatever agency it is, FDA, pick your agency, they are beholden to the finding of that federal court until it gets challenged, perhaps sent to the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court takes it up. Uh, we saw that finding with, uh, with some of the Roundup cases where there were some guilty verdicts in in some states and right. some courts. But then there were some not guilty verdicts and others. Uh, The appeal was made to the Supreme Court, and the hope was is that maybe the Supreme Court will take it up, and uh, you'll have some sort of at least definition there of of what's going on. And and really it goes back to preemption, federal preemption of pesticides. We lost that about 15, a little over 15 years ago, but there used to be federal preemption where the, the federal law really was the law. States couldn't vary off of that too much. So the hope was we'd get some clarity there. We, we'd get those goalposts set. Right. Uh, the Supreme Court decided they didn't want to take it up. Mm-hmm. And so absent that, these findings that happen in, in a court really set the path. And once you've seen that that works, you just take that chemical out and whatever other chemical you want and you replace one with the other one, yep. and go forth and do the exact same lawsuit. And we're starting to see that happen more and more. It works. They, they found a the process. It's kind of like when you find that, mm-hmm. that play that works and you just call it, you know, Pee-wee football. Yep. you, know, you just that fullback right. right? exactly right. You know it's going to get you the yep. four to five year, y- yards you need. Even if they yep. know it's coming, yep. we're going to run it. And, and that's what uh, many of the opponents of, of, of pesticides have, have really started to do
0: crazy out there. Hey, uh, tell, tell us a little about uh, PFAS. Uh, we'll, oh, PFAS. Yeah, yeah.
1: PFAS. So this is a, uh, it's a non, I wouldn't say it's an ag issue. I wouldn't say it's a rural issue. It's an everybody issue. I think that folks have started to see it. Uh, friends of mine that, that aren't in the ag industry have started to ask me mm-hmm. about it. That's when you know something's right. It's like fertilizer prices. You know, when yeah. people that aren't in the ag world start asking about it, you know, it's hit the mainstream right. media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I first heard about this probably five or six years ago out at a, a meeting with ag commissioners. And mm-hmm. one of the ag commissioners said, has anybody heard of this? The, the room was silent. No hands went up. And he said, I promise you, this will be on your front doorstep and we'll, will be one of your number one issues before you know it. Wow. And and here it is today. Uh, I think that's probably uh, exacerbated by the fact that our current EPA administrators from North Carolina. Uh, yep. Yeah. And uh, t- tell us a little bit about PFOS. What is that? Yeah, so it's, it's, they're forever chemicals, okay and so they are uh, they are chemicals that are found in everything from firefighting foam to Teflon, uh, you know, your nonstick pans, but also your uh, some of your your coatings and polymers on table, any okay. of your outdoor clothing sure um, it's really they're, they're, the downside to them is is they degrade very slowly. They call them forever chemicals for a okay. reason okay. But that's because they're tough, and so what it does is whatever it's in. It allows to you know it's not going to be degraded by sunlight and water and all these environmental factors that we have to deal with. The downside is they don't go away very 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 quickly, and it's shown that they move in water sources. And so, the EPA that's gotten on on the top of their list. I mentioned the EPA administrator being from North Carolina. Sure. One of the first opportunities that people really got to see was uh, in North Carolina, leaving what the Cape Fear River Basin or somewhere out there where they found these materials in the water and, and they started saying, okay, well they're leading to ill people, okay. you know, uh adverse health effects. A variety of them. I don't know that you want to define one particular, uh, but but a variety of them. And so people got really concerned. They started digging into it. And so they've said, okay, we've got these classic chemicals. Depending on how you define a, a PFOS chemical, mm-hmm. uh, there may be 5,0, uh using a variety of things. I think there were a half dozen or so just approved by the EPA last year. We put them in everything. And so there's many that are, that are good, uh, but, but they've identified some of these ones that they believe are really bad. The, the very tricky thing is what EPA has said is, is, in many cases, there is no detectable amount that is okay. Uh, in the drinking water, they've set it at 0.04 parts per quadrillion, which will hurt your brain to try and comprehend how small that is wow. when most of our limits are set by parts per million or parts per billion, right. which is still unbelievably small. Yes. So you can't even test that low. And so there's a lot of concern with with uh, utilities and, and water industries to know we could be giving you water that has it in there and get sued, but we can't test low enough. Can't even get that low. And right. so in the ag industry, same thing with, with all the irrigation water we use on on fruits and vegetables and our other crops, where our facilities are. And so the method to to clean it up generally is to put it under CERCLA, the um, Environmental Response Cleanup Program under EPA, and make it a Superfund site. We see bad chemicals. You know, you, oh, that's a Superfund site. There were many right. bad chemicals there. Well, there's, there's two chemicals the EPA wants to put under that and is in the process of doing that now. And there's no threshold there. So if we find those chemicals on your property, you're looking at a, a, a Superfund site, even yeah. if you didn't put them there. Because yeah. the way that works is is that it's whoever's there. It's very loose in terms of who the responsible parties would be. And so it could be under your, your subdivision. It could be under your farm shed. It could be under the football stadium. We just – they're so broad, mm-hmm. and they've been used for so long in so many different areas. Airports, uh, we're seeing a, a huge uptick in activity there that we could have super fun sites all over. And so from a real estate, farming – I mean, it's an everybody concern. Wow. And, and this – this is where we've kind of told those folks up there that, you know, we understand the, the need to clean it up, the need to look at where they are. To manage it. To but, do, yeah, that's right. But this like. might not be – this might be one of those ones where you've got to handle it a little bit differently because the unknowns are so great right. in terms of where they are, how far spread they are, and, and which ones are bad and which ones are good, that we could, <laughs> we could conceivably create a Superfund site everywhere. Um, so, uh, extremely concerning moving forward, said so that's not an ag issue, but it's an overall issue, but it's going to, it's going to impact folks, uh, because there's a lot of, of focus on food packaging and, and where sure. products that are going into human consumption are coming from and whether those have PFAS in them.
0: Well, and, and to your point, it will impact agriculture because obviously to the, to the, to crops of some of the things you just mentioned, food, uh. It's a very emotional thing. It is, and 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 when you start talking about PF, PFOS and how that can impact our food sources, now you get everybody engaged, whether they're involved in agriculture or not. You're going to get, you know, the moms of little babies uh, going back to the Gerber days, uh, you know, 30 years ago. So uh, definitely uh, something we need to be paying attention to as we move forward in the industry. Sean, uh, anything else happening in D.C. here uh, that's on top of your mind?
1: All sorts of things. I, <laughs> I think that's the one thing that, that you know, I tell folks when they ask is there are a lot of things that get accomplished yep. uh, in, in Washington, D.C. What they don't tend to be are the things that you see on the evening news. Right. Um, in many cases, maybe not as much as it used to be, but many of these legislators are our friends. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they're roommates. You know, Many of these members, especially House members that are on a, a two-year cycle, they're flying home every weekend. Uh, you know you catch any flight out of uh, of DC Reagan at the airport in DC and no matter where you're going if you're if you're catching that flight on a Thursday right. or maybe a Friday morning you're on with a, a few of your members right and so you know it's a, it's a labor they're going back and forth they're fundraising because they're running every 2 years in the house yeah. um but but they are there theres there is there there is friendliness up there uh, they do get along. They do find a way to compromise on things. Things do get accomplished. Mm-hmm. It's the macro things. It's the things that are polarizing that we see on the evening news that that really create uh, strife and, and and create that negative sentiment. But you know, I, I'd encourage people to to be active, to go up there to 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 experience it for yourself, um, to to read both sides. Right? Don't subscribe to one versus the other because right. uh, just like uh, some of the policies that have been passed lately. There, there are positives that usually come out sure. of it. It's, it's up to everybody to figure out what the, what the benefit is to you and, and, and your district and your state and your country. But uh, be engaged and, and if offered the opportunity to, to speak up and, and make your point heard. Uh, one of the old adages that was told to me when I first started this job was if, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. Right. And uh, in the ag world, we've got a phenomenal story. We've got a tremendous story that goes back to the beginnings of time, but we've never been great storytellers because we've been busy working. And uh, unfortunately, many of the folks that want to work against us, their job is to be up there working against us. And so when given the opportunities to speak up, make your voice heard, and, and get your opinions out there and talk about what's really happening out there, I'd encourage everybody to please do it. We need more voices out there. We need to be heard. We're a smaller and smaller percentage of the population. We're easy to go after because of that. Right. So be loud.
0: All right. Well, Sean McCarty, I want to thank you for joining us on FieldLink today and sharing your story uh, and the story that uh, you and your colleagues do at Helena on the Hill and around legislatures and uh, around the United States. And uh, we appreciate your time today here on FieldLink. Absolutely. Anytime. Joining us from Nashville is Jody Lawrence to bring us uh, an update on the commodity markets. Jody, welcome to FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be back. Jody, lots of things happening in the marketplace right now. Uh, What's going on today?
2: Well, uh, just uh, after last week's crop report, that came out with a lower corn yield and a lower bean yield than expected bean yield was really the surprise because beans at one point were trading 80 cents off the lows after uh... monday the 12th uh, uh, usda yield update and that's that's really what's driving the market now because you always have a little transition between the september report and the start of harvest and before The quarterly stocks report comes out on September 30th, and then the October 12th USDA, which will have more actual field data from their harvested test plots. And and as dry as it is around the country and as uh, the extra heat that we're seeing at the tail end of the summer, harvest is going to go very quickly. So in the next three weeks, we should have a lot of data from on-farm uh, from the social media sphere that everybody's posting to get a real idea if the USDA's numbers at 172.5 for corn yield and 50.5 for beans are uh, accurate numbers. The, the trade and the prices are certainly trading like they believe them. Uh, it's just a matter now of confirmation from harvest over the next uh, three to six weeks. Yeah, Jody, it definitely is dry as I'm driving across the nation. Uh, boy, this harvest
0: is probably going to go pretty fast if things maintain this and uh, definitely going to impact some of these yields.
2: Yeah, that everybody I've talked to who is already in the field, uh, the corn moisture numbers are five, six points below normal. So that's both, it, uh, it's, it, that really helps on farm, especially right now with the high cost of. And the availability of propane and natural gas to dry it down, and the fact that we're all this corn is going into a cash marketplace that is where basis has been so strong, and they have really been actively trying to buy a lot of corn lately. So this should be a good harvest for in a couple different directions for uh, for the U.S. farmer. Uh, it, on top of uh, the quick dry down and the quick harvest, but also that the basis markets are going to stay stout a little bit longer than expected. Yeah, definitely uh, energy is uh,
0: definitely going to be impacted here with this harvest being a little bit drier. Uh, Speaking of energy,
2: how, how is the energy market happening right now? What are you picking up? Well, crude oil is trading just above $85 a barrel, and diesel fell all the way to almost three dollars and10 cents on the October futures earlier this week. It's bounced up to about 335, and I think the energy markets, with the uncertainty of the world recessions, and we're recording this on the 20th, tomorrow, the 21st, the Federal Reserve meets to uh, raise the rates and expected. Three quarters of an additional point, and with that, you've got a lot of uncertainty and some high-level concern that their fight of inflation is going to drive the entire world into a recession, and that's why crude. You've got crude down, you know, trading at the at the lowest prices that we've seen in quite some time, and also with diesel. But I think if, uh, just like we've been. Advising everybody on these price dips, anytime you see it at 320 to 330, a little bit below where we are now, top off your tanks because you just never know as we advance in hurricane season what's and also what uh, Russia and Ukraine are going to do. Now that the war is not going so well for Russia, you have a really, a real wild card of Putin uh, with his. Uh, being a caged animal and is back into a wall of doing something that could really disrupt uh, so many things and not just the natural gas supply going into Europe. And Jody, as uh, growers get ready for harvest time, is there any last minute advice here as we move into harvest? Just to watch your basis, uh, that as you move forward, the basis is is front weighted as as is the carry in the futures market, so that the the industry wants your grain to refill the pipeline, so it's as good, it's, it's good a year as you've had in between the early dry down uh, and the lack of availability of some other things to be able to just get it off-farm as quickly as possible and not miss out on any of the normal carry that's in the market to to store it. All righty, well, thanks for the advice today, Jody,
0: and uh, your insight on the commodity market. And uh, we'll catch you next time here on Lake. Joining us today is Keith Muck, agronomist out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Keith, uh, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, where, where's home? Uh, where'd you grow up? And uh, how long have you been with Helena?
3: Well, I was born and raised in Nebraska. I live in Lincoln currently. Uh, I've been uh, we lived in my wife and I and our children. We lived in Fairbury for a number of years. Um, so I've I've been out in this area. Uh, had the opportunity to work in the seed business for a while. Uh, been with Helen for 14 years and had a couple of different roles. One was product manager, and uh, then also now in the in the agronomy side. A uh, lot of lot of experience. Uh, after 30 some years in the business, and uh, my role is to assist our locations, our our field people, who make the recommendations, uh, tape, you know across the kitchen table. I'm happy to do that. We've got some got some great people making some really good recommendations, uh, and we we try to do the best and give the grower the the highest return. For the dollar invested through efficiencies and increased production.
0: And that's what I like to do. Keith, you know, fall certainly upon us. Uh, the Harvest is wrapping up for a lot of small grain producers and and row crop growers are getting ready for that harvest. Uh, and today we're going to focus on, uh, you know, fall burn down and you know where that whole, uh, I guess, philosophy started, and uh, you know how we can start to manage uh, our weed bed, our, our, our fields rather, uh, for the next growing season. And Keith, welcome to FieldLink.
3: Well, thank you, Bill. Um, Yeah, fall burndown, that's been a term that keeps growing um, around the industry and and coffee shops about, you know, this application. It sounds pretty aggressive, Uh, gosh, what is fall burndown, but really everybody knows that it's just uh, another tool in the toolbox to control the weeds that we're dealing with out here uh, in the High Plains and then moving east through the Corn Belt. You know, where the term came from, uh, it could be the, as much investigation that I did. I think it came from uh, really the small grain producers that would harvest winter wheat in that July time frame, earlier July or late July, and then about a month later or so they would go out with a with a program to kill the weeds that had remained in the stubble and then also some of the later germinating weeds and uh, now with what we're doing as far as the hybrids and the varieties that we're planting earlier and earlier and getting earlier harvest when we remove that canopy from the field whether it be corn or soybeans we'll still see a pretty late flush of some of these weeds Um, and not only the flush that came after harvest uh, but also some of the weeds that were small that we're in the within the crop you remove that canopy and the Sun hits it and all of a sudden we take off and and we'll get a smaller weed in as far as stature but it still produces seed and we want to keep that seed bank uh, empty as much as we can to help us with our uh, with our program come spring
0: well Keith I think you uh, really hit something there uh, you know we've seen an evolution of I guess technology different. Uh, cropping techniques you referenced uh, no-till uh, and, and that's really kind of changed how we need to approach uh, you know weed management especially in the fall.
3: Yeah the uh, adoption of no-till across the plains and then moving east has been um, for a good thing. It, it uh, saves moisture you know and and it also reduces uh, erosion dramatically but it becomes an issue then because the weed spectrum, the, the species that we're dealing with, can change as well. And so we've, uh, what Grandpa used to deal with as far as major weeds has changed now. And we're, we're having to deal with mare's tail and we're dealing with henbit and chickweed. Uh, you know, some of those dandelion, those, those uh, fall, the, what they call winter annuals. And uh, we need to get something on in the fall because they're already germinated and sitting there come spring and waiting for that optimal temperature where they can take off, which is earlier than what we're able to get out in the spring to get ahead of them and, and remove them from the, uh, from the fields at that time. So a good program in the fall, uh, you know, say a glyphosate in the tank for some, any grass that might be there, but also uh, a phenoxy, a 2,4-D dicamba, you can use those, we have Helena, we have Barrage, uh, we can put that in the tank. We have premixes uh, of say like Latigo Bold, which is both 2,4-D and, and Dicamba. And we can take care of an awful lot of uh, the weeds that are out there. But if you're gonna do that, I would recommend a, a good adjuvant on oil, sure. a strong oil. Some of these weeds have got a thick cuticle and we need that oil to break through that cuticle. And then also because of the temperatures, typically they're a little bit cooler and that activity on the leaf surface uh, slows down uh, as far as uptake and getting that active ingredient into the leaf. So an oil such as a fire zone will help break through that waxy cuticle, also take that AI and get it into the plant sooner so that it can move throughout and, and get, to the, uh, get to the action site and, and kill the weed
0: yeah you you mentioned uh, earlier you know one of the big reasons we want to get after these weeds at this stage here in the fall is is really to eliminate that seed wet and and ultimately preserve some of the fertility uh so that we're not having to you know rob that soil uh for, for next year's crop at this stage in the
3: game yeah so uh, through the through the years i've experienced some interesting things and and even though, uh, say like, uh, I'll just talk about henbit for a little bit here. It can, uh, it'll eventually die and release everything back, but that's later in the season. And, and it's there in the spring of the year with a pretty massive uh, root structure, pulling moisture and nutrients from that top two inches. And that's exactly where our, uh, the corn seed or soybean seed is trying to emerge. And uh, it's robbing everything there, and so I've actually seen uh, population reduced, uh, planting through heavy, heavy uh, weed uh, patches of henbit and and tail, um, and then they eventually, uh, you know, die back, but then created seed for the next year. So that's uh, it's just a good practice. Everybody knows that you don't want to have weeds in your crops.
0: Right. And, and you did, uh, you mentioned multiple modes of action. There's lots lots of different tank mixes. Certainly, we would encourage folks to visit with their Helena representative for their best, uh, you know, tank mix uh, for their farm and their field. But you referenced Latigo Bold uh, a little bit there. Uh, Keith, uh, tell us a little bit more about Latigo Bold and, you know, how that particular product could, you know, work, uh, potentially be a tool for a lot of growers.
3: Well, Let It Go Bold is a premix uh, with a, it with a formulated uh, through our uh, lab, if you will, and, and gives us the best opportunity with the oil base that it is to be able to, number one, get to the crop, uh, get from the spray uh, nozzle down to the, the target weed, and then be able to uh, be taken in, gives us two modes of action, uh, it's a 2,4-D, it's a, it's, a, it's a dicamba, but those are specially formulated. Uh, I right, have
0: the, the Moveo formulation technology in that, correct?
3: Right, yeah. it's the Moveo technology that's in, those, in that product, in that tank mix, that, that helps it get into the weed, translocate, um, and that's, that's a big thing. Uh, not only penetration, getting into the weed, but translocating throughout the plant so that we get a, a, a good uh, kill, a good response.
0: Yeah, and, and you also touched on the importance of adding an adjuvant uh, into that tank mix. You know, I know a lot of producers you know, are, are very comfortable with, oh, it's all in one tank, uh, you know, or all in one can type of strategies. And there's a lot of companies over the years that have promoted that, but having that proper adjuvant, you referenced a couple there, uh, is really important for this particular application in order to get that quick kill.
3: Absolutely. Uh, so, a lot of times uh, we'll visit with uh, growers, and and there's, they'll say, "Well, I'm I'm putting in a crop oil," and and that's you know better than than not having a crop oil. But when you really are uh, wanting to get the biggest bang for the buck, you want to have an MSO, uh, a methylated seed oil. And there's differences amongst the MSOs that are on the market. Uh, I'm going to mention one from us. It's called. Uh, Fire zone. We use that out of crop. So anything in the fall would be able to put fire zone in the tank. It's a it's a product. It's an MSO. Um, It helps with uh, translocating that active through the plant uh, once it gets there. But it's a strong uh, strong product for breaking through that uh, waxy cuticle and also. We've done some demonstrations with it. Um, when you start getting into those cooler temperatures in the fall and you have an oil in the tank, it uh, you know, it doesn't want doesn't to behave like when it's 78, 80 degrees. And uh, it, th- it might even slow things down. Uh, with the uh, adjuvant that, that were you talking about here, uh, fire zone, It's still very active at those uh, lower temperatures. It's called solvency, and it has a very high solvency rate number.
0: Great. And that's something else that, uh, you know, again, producers out there across the country should definitely reach out to their Helena representative to find out which adjuvant best fits their farm. Absolutely. Uh, Fire Zone certainly is a great product for a lot of producers. Uh, But again, geographically, there's lots of different situations out there, and we have quite a portfolio for those folks. Keith, uh, you know, managing these sweet seed beds uh, is really critically important. You referenced several weeds that have kind of evolved and become a bit of monsters, really, over the uh, number of years. But, Keith, what are some other strategies to help with, I guess, the fertility and some of the other challenges that we've, I guess, really grown to face here, especially with biotechnology coming in for corn stocks? You know, we're seeing some stocks that are, you know, very... uh, challenging for producers from a mechanical standpoint but also from a cultural standpoint what are some things growers could consider when they're approaching
3: their fall burn down system well, man that that's kind of a hot topic uh, uh this year for us uh out here um high plains uh, we just uh, we didn't have the winter that we were looking for to help break down that uh, that residue and as we, as we get higher and higher yields we know that uh we're dealing with more residue that's left in the field, and if it's uh, you know it doesn't break down properly, it can cause us some issues in the spring. So, when we're putting uh, herbicide, you know, herbicide program on on corn stubble, so that when we rotate to the soybeans, we can we can get ahead of the weed spectrum, like I talked about earlier. We'll uh, recommend or at least visit with the with the applicator and the grower. And see if uh, and see if maybe a a a stock decomposition program would be uh, beneficial. Uh, what that entails is a product, uh, say like a humic acid, uh, in the tank. We call uh, we have a product called Hyre-Hume. Uh We'll put some 32 in with the with the application, maybe about three gallons of UAM. Um, Three to five a gallon of hydrohume, and then our uh, application for our, our burn down or killing of the weeds. So we're taking care of getting ahead of that weed uh, flush in the spring, right. and we're also breaking down that residue, which uh, has nutrients that are then released to the soil and uh, been able to. We can utilize that in the next growing season, and. Uh, m- Recycle that, if you will, Bill. Recycle it back to the soil. Definitely,
0: a lot of great strategies out there for fall burn down. Uh, it is a very important process uh, to control our, our our weed seed bank uh, for the following year. But uh, Keith, any any uh, ideas as far as uh, weather, how weather uh, can impact you know some of these applications as we take a look at fall?
3: Yeah, uh, the best thing that could happen is we. Uh, as as we get into the fall, have some moisture, um, and we're we're a little limited out here uh, in in some of these areas. But uh, we also have the ability to uh, put some moisture on through a pivot. And it sounds kind of crazy, but uh, listen, I a number of places I've been where uh, we've actually using the, uh, the decomposition of our residue program, and uh, maybe turn the pivot one time. It, uh, the benefits coming back in the spring, as far as cutting through that residue with the planter and the true V opener, getting the seed placed where we have good seed-soil contact at the proper depth, uh, it, it it comes back in so many benefits as far as even emergence, spate, and uh, and early season growth and and uniformity. That's that's where we start off well and we get our best foot forward for the production that we're looking for the the following year.
0: Awesome. Keith Mock, thanks for joining us today here on FieldLink and we appreciate uh, how you help the folks at Helena help those producers produce a more profitable crop.
3: Thank you, Bill. Good talking to all of you. Good luck this fall. Be safe.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of FieldLink. Be sure to download FieldLink on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media to be sure that you don't miss the latest FieldLink podcast episode. Plus, gain even more agronomic insight by visiting the FieldLink section on HelenaAgra.com.